Good morning and welcome to Fencing by the Book, the podcast where we take an in-depth look at the early Lichtenhauer longsword glosses. I'm your host, Mike Smorridge, and joining us are a panel of Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chidester, Kendra Brand, Stephen Cheney, Jess Finley, and TQ. This is episode 28, which we're recording after 29, just to make things complicated. Uh, but we we saved it because we want to do a special mega episode on the couplet 78 uh, discussing indes, which is a uh, complicated word to translate. Now, we'll get the into panels, that. Yeah, don't worry, we've got like another hour and a half of that. So our panel's growing. So super quickly, we'll, we'll go through what we've been up to, and then we'll discuss the fesh lead, which we uh, were saving up until Joey's back, and then we'll get on to the <laughs> meat of the episode. So, uh, what have you been up to, Jess? Uh, I don't know, life and COVID, but I've been um, mostly working on prepping. I'm going to do a 12-week online lesson series um, on the Hopstuka and like physically performing them and how they interact with each other and what they are as uh, tactics or as concepts greater than and beyond what they are as a thing you do with a sword in the one play in the one book. So prepping for all that. Sweet. Thank you very much. Uh, Michael Chester and Kendra, what have you folks been up to? I have spent most of the past week researching Bellafortis for a paper I'm writing, which is a war book from the beginning of the 15th century. If you ever look through, for example, Talhofer and see crazy pictures of siege engines and guys in medieval diving suits, that's all Bellafortis, and he gets it from this treatise. So I'm working on really what might be the first significant English language discussion of it for the Talhofer companion volume. Cool. And, and it's slow going. It's kind of a slog because nearly everything written about it is in German. So I have to first punch it through Google to get a translation of it and then figure out what they're talking about and then try to actually say something meaningful on top of that. Cool. And Kendra, what have you been up to? I have been writing about a method of decorating the edges of books that was used in the 16th century and before. And also to prepare for this episode, I have begun converting my translation notes into a Zettelkasten, mostly because I think it's funny sounding to have a Zettel Zettelkasten. <laughs> nice. Uh, Steve, what have you been up to? I, I guess I have been working on the second edition of my book, which will have some changes in it. And I have been reading The Inner Game of Tennis, which will come up during this episode, I'm sure. Cool. Didn't the first uh, edition of your book just Kendo? Sorry? Just Kendo? Didn't no, the just first come edition out. of your book just come out? I mean, yeah. it's just Kendo, just too. Come out. Yeah, it did. But, you know, I got to start working on it now, so it'll... Uh... But it's also, <laughs> there's already I've already found a number of things that I disagree with in it. So <laughs> there's nothing like actually publishing to make you work out what you disagree with in your own opinions. Yeah. Cool. That's fair. Uh, T, what have you been up to? Uh, not that much. Uh, we shut down uh, fencing again in the UK. So uh, everything's been a bit quiet. 
Um, but I did nose into the British Library uh, last week and check out a paper which Michael Chittister already had and also pick up a few other bits for uh, one for Jens Kleinau um, on something he wanted. And I took a look at a 1481 Saxon Spiegel printed in Augsburg, uh, which was pretty fun to poke through. Um, I'll make a trip back there for the 1484 copy they also have um, at some point when somebody else isn't consulting it. Um, Three years difference. Wait, somebody else is reading this thing? Apparently so. When I tried to take it out, they told me a Deepunt Rental reader had it. So, Wow. I guess I lost that dice. The fourteen eighty four one is actually quite interesting because it's by a female printer, uh, which is reasonably rare. Sweet, Joey, welcome back. <laughs> well, what have you been you? up to in the last couple of weeks? Few weeks. Oh yeah, it's it's been a while since I've appeared on this podcast, and in that time, I managed to launch my my page where I decided to publish uh, a few of my research projects. So I really like to research some well, well topics, but then I usually forget about them and they disappear on my laptop. So I was looking for a platform to uh, collect them for myself. And I, I made a WordPress page and a Facebook page. It's called Wild Hema Studies. And I have uh, published my research on the Fechtlied. <laughs> it was so much fun. Um, All right. Well, what's we the talk about it? When it's or... at home? Yeah, let's talk about okay. it. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there's Christoph Rüsener. He was apparently uh, Marx's Bruder. And in one of his uh, books, it's called uh, hmm, Ehrentitel und Lobspruch der Ritterlichen Freien Kunst der Fechter, uh, which is. Rolls off the tongue. A... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's it's translated into uh, honors and praise to the free and chivalric art of fencing or something. And in there he has some um, rhymes, uh, songs, maybe. I'm not sure if the other parts are also songs. But in there uh, he has at least one song. It's called uh, Der Gesang der Ritterlichen Fechtkunst or The Song of the Knightly Arts of Fencing. And I, I'm not sure if, if Christoph Rösener wrote it or Paulus Roth, because both names appear. I think Paulus Roth uh, wrote it and sort of gifted it to, to Christoph Rösener. Anyway, uh, it's a song and it's about fencing and it includes all the KDF terms, terms and it's really cool. They also give us the melody or the tune uh, we're supposed to sing this song in. And I found a surviving example of the tune because it's a quite famous melody that was used uh, throughout the 16th century. And so so I they're reusing to... another another tune for it, are they? Yeah, they. Yeah, so the tune was originally, I think, written in in 1504 about a. Hmm. Oh yeah, about the siege of the city of Kufstein in Austria. It's called the Benzenauer, or Der Benzenauer. Yeah, and it was originally used for, for that uh, battle uh, over the city of Kufstein. And apparently it was so famous and, and so good that people used it for other songs as well. And they did for this Fechtlied. And I managed to find the tune and I transcribed it into a modern notation system because it's in ugh, mensural notation, uh, mensural notation. It's a little bit different than today's notation, uh, but I managed to transcribe it, and it turned out okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
it's not the most exciting song ever. <laughs> but it was a cool little project, and people um, sent me their own interpretations and translations. So Steve has already uh, given us a really, really cool English translation in a very, very campfirey sort of way. It's, it's. I call it Hema Country. I, I love it, and some Irish guy. Oh, sorry, uh, Matthew Malcolms, I think. Yeah, medieval combat group in Northern Ireland. Yeah, he he sung it as well, or he he wrote uh, his own interpretation of it with his own translation, and he made the best video ever. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's really impressive. Really cool. And I think some Polish guys are are working on a Polish translation, mm. but I'm not sure if they. Uh, deliver it but if they do it would be so cool cool i um i just want to mention about that so there's a lot of you know as joey said there's a lot of uh references to like uh you know stuff we do in kdf like you know zornhow and you know all the different cuts and stuff but there's also a couple of references in there that i miss at first so there's in the beginning it says will do auch probieren aus rechter Meisterschaft, which is like if you want to test, you know, from correct like masterhood or like then you have to do weak and strong, weakness and strength. And that could be a reference to the actual test that they had to do in the Marx Bruder to become a master, which I think is pretty cool. Because uh, one of the things in the in the um Hans Madel Facebook, they have like the record of the Marx Bruder and they and they list uh, weak and weakness and strength as something that you need to do for the test. And there's another one in there, Vildu Dantragen den Meisterlichen Kranz. So if you want to take home or wear or whatever the um, the master's wreath or the master's garland or something, and uh, the idea that I had for that is that they're referencing the um, the laurel crown that would be worn by the, uh, I guess, mm -hmm. the quote-unquote winner of the Fechula. And the following line is, uh, you must have four guards and they belong to the dance or they pertain to the dance. And I thought that that could be a reference to the uh, swords dance that they would do. So they would uh, sometimes make like a... Uh, they would weave fetters together to make a uh, a platform, and like fencers would hold up the platform, and somebody would stand on them and do a dance. So I guess they danced by using all four guards and like going out, going between them and stuff. The making of the platform Crazy. is part of the dance. There's a whole choreography that goes into weaving your swords together, um, and lots of clanging and so on. Before you get to the the platform part, is like the pinnacle of it Sweet. when you've interwoven everything illustrations Sweet. that show two of these facing each other and the two guys on top are taking different stances like and i don't remember which but specific recognizable guards i think i've seen at least one where one of the dudes is in zorn hut which is an exciting stance to have on the top of a platform of woven swords <laughs> i wonder i wonder how flexy their feathers were like how much bounce <laughs> you get one of these it's a trampoline. <laughs> I think at Dijon one year they did this and they actually yeah. I don't remember what the results were, 
this video of it on YouTube if you it, dig it, it up. Or if I can find it. Fetters. Cool. I, I don't think I would volunteer my fetter for that. <laughs> yeah, like there, there is definitely a video of this from Dijon. They had all the people in the bottom here fencing masks. Um, just in case. Just in case, yeah. I've often wondered if this is connected to uh, just randomly digressing. You see in Northern England a series of sword dances, um, uh, which still survive under the name of rapper dancing. Um, and there's kind of two forms of it. The more common form now has very flexible sort of swords with two handles on them. They're kind of like a, a three foot piece of very flat spring steel um, with a, a handle on each end. And there's a lot of figures about interweaving the swords and doing flips and stuff where like one person like jumps and the other people flip them using the sword. So they flip over and stuff. Um, it's pretty cool. I have a few friends who do it, but they also have an older form that's a bit less common now where they use longer, stiffer swords. But I think they still have a, a grip on each end, at least in the in the dance version. But you've got mm -hmm. to wonder if there's a, an older connection there to like some form of old tradition with sword dancing that's been modified over 600 years of... Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's other stuff in... Uh the the rest of the fechtli that i've missed other references and stuff but just a few of them that the average li listener might miss on a first go through cool we'll put up links to to the fechtli and steve's version of it and uh, the belfast version in the episode show notes so moving on we, uh, we're only doing one uh, one couplet today yeah hannah we've missed you Steve had to do his best Joey impression while you were away. <laughs> I would have liked to hear it. <laughs> well, you can, can just listen to the episodes. <laughs> but would you be able to give us this couplet? But Mike, what have you been up to? What have I been up to? Very little. I, I went to the world's biggest concert on Friday. Not the biggest concert ever, just the biggest one on Friday. <laughs> um, and yeah, fencing wise, I think I managed to make. <laughs> yeah, the only concert in the world on Friday. Well, there were some others in the country, but you know. Uh, yeah, fencing wise, very very little. I think I managed to make half an hour of one training in the last few weeks. But I'm gonna head out and go fencing straight after this episode. No. So anyway, no. back on topic. You... COVID again. Yes. Yeah. Amazing. Like, it turns out you need to have a strictly enforced quarantine that isn't just hoping that people stay at home when people first arrive in the country. Otherwise, they, they literally tie bedsheets together and crawl out the windows. <laughs> All right, on topic. Uh, Johanna, could you give us the German version? <laughs> yeah. Das fühlen leere, indes das Wort schneidet sehre. Thank you very much. And Steve, could you give us the English translation from Harry? This is a good rhyme here, ready? Learn the feeling, read what it says, and the word that cuts deepest is indes. Wow. <laughs> that is I love it. All right. Um, so today's episode is all about the word indes, which means in the, literally, in it. Who wants to take it up? T, <laughs> I'm tagging you in. I'm definitely not a translator, um, but Indes is a kind of poorly translated word. You see a bunch of different translations for this um, in different people's 
different people's renditions of this stuff. Broadly speaking, they fit into two, there's three different approaches translators take. They either use a word that conveys a kind of temporal simultaneity or insideness, so like during or within or something, or they use one that conveys a kind of a spatial insideness. Uh, inside or again within can kind of be a bit of each, or they just don't translate it, or they try and translate it super literally into something like in thereof, which I guess is the fourth method that I didn't count in my initial three. Um, <laughs> Doing well. On the Derfreyhold does that, I believe. So it's worth pointing out that in modern German, as far as I understand it, it has a strictly temporal significance. It means during, it means meanwhile. And the question is, or the, the relevant question to Hema is, did it also mean that in the 15th century? And the answer is uh, mumble, no one's really sure. Uh, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> So uh, depending on who you ask and what their background is, they'll say yes or no. I don't know, Joey. Actually, what do you think? Okay. Um, you're you're a I, I, <laughs> I have no idea what it meant in the early New High German period. So if I look at Middle High German dictionaries, they all uh, all I've looked at uh, give us the the temporal meaning. So they all say uh, it means währenddessen or inzwischen, which I'd both translate into meanwhile or in the meantime. Um, this is how we use the word today. So we have the word in our modern uh, language, but it's quite old-fashioned and fancy, and it's mm, mostly used in written language, so in newspaper articles or whatever. Uh, but we still use it seldomly and only uh, in that temporal sense. So I've heard from another Germanist that it also, especially in Middle High German, could have a temporal or a spatial meaning. And that in early New High German, it's, it's definitively changed to a, a purely temporal meaning, but that both meanings existed in Middle High German. Um, oh. So it, it would be sort of inside or within in both a temporary, temporal and a spatial sense. So inside of a house or inside of an event um, would equally be in des. Um, but I don't have resources that I can use to back that up right now on me. I'd have to go track down what dictionary she was looking at. I had never done that. But the, the other interesting point on that note is that Joachim Meyer claims that it's not actually a German word at all. But, so actually what he says, to be fair, is that other masters that he knows teach that it's not a German word, but it's a Germanization of the Latin word intus, which means within or inside. And other masters teach that, and he thinks it's wrong, and that it has a purely temporal meaning. So from that, we can learn at least that there, there was an idea in the 16th century that indes might mean something about place and not about time, even though Meyer doesn't think it's, it's correct. Meyer also uh, gives us, after he says that, you know, Intus is wrong, he gives us a much broader definition of Indus than we see in the RDL sources. Mm, and he also contrasts it with Gleich, which means simultaneously. So he doesn't think it means that, but he what, he, what it means, he gives like a whole paragraph that doesn't say very much. Well, basically with Meyer, what you have and partly this is necessary if you have a simultaneous actions version, like a, a temporal simultaneity version of Indes. So Indes, just to, to back off for a minute, tends to be used for actions which are happening during or inside or 
in the time and movement of your opponent's movement in a way that defeats their action would probably be my my kind of short summary of it. And if you have this idea that it's about the time, you'd need a way to distinguish it from simultaneous actions that are bad, where like you cut at me and I cut at your leg and we both hit each other and it was simultaneous, but clearly my decision was stupid. So if you if you want to call Indes good simultaneous, then you need something for bad simultaneous, which is kind of what Meyer does look like. Um, or Glee is my understanding. Whereas if you have a, a different version of it, then you can maybe get away without needing that because you don't have this idea that, oh, well, this is simultaneous and Indes is simultaneous and this is the peak of the art, but this is clearly not the peak of the art. So we have to have another name for this thing. My impression has always been that Meyer was including that as because he was trying to shoehorn Italian tempo idea into Lichtenauer, and he needed a mezzotempo stand-in word, and he knew that Indes wasn't mezzotempo, so he made up this, is it Gleich or Gleich? I don't remember how it's spelled. Don't look at me. Gleich. It's E-I? Yeah. So it would be Gleich, yeah. So he added Gleich in to be mezzotempo, so Indes could be its own thing. Because, and I don't know if this is on our notes or not, but Indes has nothing to do with tempo. Suck it, Greg. Well, whether Indus has something to do with tempo depends on what you mean by tempo, which could be its own entire podcast, I guess. <laughs> what Does is Kendo Indus? have a word for tempo? They have the whole go no go thing. Well, we I've have... had it described that Indus is sen no sen based on Kendo. Um, so we have uh, go no sen, sen no sen, and sen sen no sen. Um, go no sen is opponent attacks first and you attack after. So your parry repost type situation. Sen no sen is you attack simultaneously with their attack. And sen sen no sen would be you attack before their attack. So <laughs> I think sen no sen would be like Gleich more than Indus. Okay, so, so they have like a, a vor, acting vor and acting knack, but they don't have dividing yeah. things into tempos. Okay. So Thank you very much for listening to the Kendo podcast. I've been your. Right. So I, I, I mean, they match up, like, Gonosen matches up with Nach pretty well, and Sen Sen no Sen matches up with Four pretty well. But I don't think Sen no Sen matches up with Indes, personally. Cool. Yeah. Um, the other interesting thing about Indes in taking it back to RDL is that all of the glosses here say that Indes, you should say something along the lines of you should learn Fulin and Indes and understand that these are the same. Yeah, maybe we should take up what the actual gloss says before we get into the weeds. This was what the actual gloss says. Maybe what are you complaining about? <laughs> but my point would be that they're making a distinction potentially between simultaneous actions which occur with blade contact or which occur with some sort of bind. Um, and therefore where feeling um, the opponent's pressure or the opponent's blade becomes possible, and ones which don't. And you could maybe try and argue that Meyer is like his aversion of uh, like simultaneous actions without a bind, um, like long point open and close doubles a little bit. Uh, but I haven't read the Meyer one in enough detail to have an opinion. Okay, so... Would it be a good idea for me to read out the gloss for Indes? Yes. Yep. Do you want right, to go I'll, one, one little section at a time? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll go with the, the super gloss from the kind of composite of everything. Okay. Learn the feeling within that word cut sorely. 
Within for reference is the word that's being used to translate indes here. Yeah. With a capital word. Gloss, remember, feeling and the word within are the best and greatest of all the art of the sword. And whoever is a master of the sword, or wants to be, if he cannot feel and cannot understand the word within, then he is not a master, but rather he is a buffalo of the sword. Therefore, first and foremost, learn well the feeling and the word within, and understand that these two things cannot be separated. So one thing that strikes me one thing that strikes me in this section that's different from most of the text is that indes slash within is really its wordiness is being emphasized. That they're not saying learn this random preposition. They're saying this is a word that you should know. So they're sort of separating it from the sort of the main body of the language. They're like elsewhere they tell you to do something indes, but here they're saying the word indes is what we're going to focus on now. And what does it mean? For sure. I don't think there are not many words that are treated like this in the class. We're going to have to talk about buffalo again also. Yep, that was on my list. Uh, we've already squinted at them, haven't we? Yeah, but this is where the buffalo is really... This is the buffalo part. Okay. It was just an appetizer. This is the main course of buffalo. <laughs> Okay, so, right. so we already know that, um, that it's a technical word and that masters understand it. Right, and, and masters are contrasted with buffaloes here. This is arguably the only technical word defined in the gloss, or the only word which I can think of in the gloss, which is given this sort of treatment as this is a specific special word you should learn. Whereas a lot of other stuff seems to be assumed that you would know or know in passing, which is an interesting uh, point. Cool. All right, so then this next major point. Uh, learn well the feeling and the word within and understand these two things cannot be separated. So you can't have foolin without indes and indes without foolin. There's some kind of claim like that going on here, isn't there? Yeah, the, the, that feeling the find is, is uh, central to the concept of the word indes. Uh, yeah. And they then they go on to explain what that means. So, rest of the gloss. Okay, rest of the gloss. Next section. Here, remember the lesson of the feeling and of the word which is called within. Remember, when you approach him with your onset, when you bind on another's sword, then as the swords clash together, feel within it, whether he is bound hard or soft on you. And as soon as you have perceived that hard or soft, then think on the word within. That is, in that same swift perception of the hard and the soft, nimbly work on the sword towards his nearest exposure. So he is struck ere he has his insight, ere as you are struck. Likewise, remember that the feeling and the word within are one thing, and one may not be without the other, and understand it like this. Keep going. Keep going. When you bind on his sword, then you must feel with the hand, with the word within, if he is but hard or soft on the sword. And when you have felt this, then you must work within it, after the hard and after the soft on the sword. One more. More. One more. Oh, right. Thus, they are both naught but one thing, and the word within is in all plays previously. Referring to like the entire book. 
All right, I'm not going to do the list just yet. Yeah, the list. <laughs> the list. I think this is the highest density of hard and soft anywhere in the gloss. Yeah. Since it comes up like seven times. One of the really interesting things about this actually is that like they're using hard and soft instead of strong and weak. Um, whereas in the beginning of the uh, in the very beginning of the gloss, if you cast your mind back to episode like three or whatever, we're told that it's about strong and weak or what Fulin is about. Whereas here we're consistently saying hard and soft. Um, which is an interesting variation. And it's unclear, or they're not really consistent about whether hard and soft is the same as strong and weak or not. There are a few places where they use one word and the other would seem to make sense, but a lot of times they seem to have a specific separate intention for what strong and weak are and what hard and soft are. Yeah. The idea I'm kicking around at the minute when it comes to teaching or fencing or whatever is that like, um, if you have a, a sword, right, it's it's easy to divide a sword into sort of two pieces where you have the strong at one end and the weak at the other. Um, but you kind of have a, a fuzzy bit in the middle. And hard and soft applies mostly to that fuzzy bit, that center section, which is neither strong nor weak. So like if I'm if my weak is bound on your strong, it doesn't matter how hard either of us is pushing, I'm not going to be displacing your sword really. Like I can take a parry against a two-handed sword with one hand very easily if I use the strong of my sword and your sword will stop. But if it's in the middle of the blade, hard and soft becomes very relevant. And then if it's out of the weak, again, it doesn't really matter how hard I push, I'm not going to displace your sword. So that's like a way to square the two for me. Um, and you can either adjust by changing the pressure you're providing and staying in the middle of the blade or by moving it to one of the ends of the blade, which are your kind of your two axes of adjustment. That you can you can apply. So you can go, you know, you're you're going strong, so I'm going to become stronger and put my strong on your weak. Or I can say, okay, you're being hard, so I'm going to be harder and push your blade aside with like some crimping wrenching action or something. And those are two different ways you could approach similar-ish problems. Whether the second one is a good idea is a, a matter for your fencing. Um, I probably would advise being weak instead, but being soft instead. But you know, your choice. <laughs> cool. Uh, last section. Oh well, if we're gonna if we're gonna go on, then I've got more to say. <laughs> go on to. Um, so I've mentioned previously a few times this idea, like a a very spatial direction of movement idea for Nak, where you have Vor is moving to an opening, whereas Nak is moving after the sword. Nak is moving after the sword, and from this perspective, what Indes becomes is an idea of changing a direction of movement, either changing from moving after their sword towards moving to an opening. If you're doing it from a kind of from a defensive action, so if you say thrust at me and I wind against your sword and then work my point into the opening, that's indes, where I go from follow chasing your sword to going for your opening. Or if I've come in with an attack first and you parried it, then as I change to a new opening based on what I feel, that becomes uh, that's indes where I'm again changing the direction of my movement, um, and this connects quite well to some of the gloss around here where it's like you know, as soon as you perceive hard or soft on the sword, um, work indes on the sword to the nearest opening, etc., etc. Nearest is not necessarily the physically nearest. You know, if the nearest opening is the one through your sword, then that's not the one I'm going to move to, but rather the one which is most direct or most, most easy to move to. And one of the things I like about this kind of quite spatial mental framework for it is that it becomes... I find it's easier to start to apply it in the middle of actual fencing. If like as soon as I feel your pressure, I'm thinking kind of intuitively, where can I move to most easily to continue the attack? Or where, you know, where can I put my point most easily at now? 
if you're pushing across, then that might be underneath. If you're pushing, like if you're soft, then that'll be straight through. But it's not so much about trying to move simultaneously through movement as trying to find where I can get to most trivially, which I personally find easier to apply in the middle of actual fencing. Your mileage may vary. So one interesting thing that's worth pointing out before we go into the next section is that in this section, they're emphasizing as hard as they possibly can, this connection between binding and feeling the bind and acting in des, which is interesting because the next section is going to introduce some potentially non-bind indes actions or actions that don't necessarily require a bind. So there's a so that the question will arise of why are they emphasizing so much that there's there has to be feeling to act in des and there has to be a bind and you have to act once you feel the bind. Um, if then they're going to tell you no 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 just do whatever in the next section. But here, I don't think there's any room to argue that in these two paragraphs we just read, Indes is inextricably tied to the mind. Anyone want to offer an argument there? Let's uh, muddy the waters with the list first, and then get back All right. to that. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to establish right. where we are before we get to the list. Now let's see if the list changes it. Uh, so, so we've just covered that within is in everything else in the book so far, and then we get this nice list. Remember this, within doubles, within mutates, within changes through, within runs through, within takes the slice, within wrestles with, within takes the sword, within does whatever your heart desires. Within, this is a sharp word wherein all masters of the sword who know not to name it are cut down. And the word within is the key with which all of the art of fencing becomes unlocked. So Ooh. probably the first thing so to beautiful. emphasize is that this is actually a poem in the original German. Um, the translation we just used there is not rhyming, but I think Michael Chittister put together a rhyming one, which we should maybe have. Because um, the fact that it's rhyming is really interesting. It's the only bit of rhyming loss that I can think of. Somebody read the rhyming in the yeah. English version. Uh, so, so the little rhyme I put together was... Uh, so does Mike want to read it or should I? No, I'm done contributing to this podcast. Go ahead, Mike. <laughs> All right. Within mutates and within duplicates, within runs through and within changes through, within finds grips and within the sword strips, within cuts and severs, and within grants your heart's desire. Pretty good. Last couplets are worthy of Harry. <laughs> <laughs> Right, and so it, it's naming seven plays plus whatever your heart desires, but it's naming them possibly specifically in order to do rhyming and not because these seven plays are special, maybe. Um, but it's, it seems to me that the rhyming is the key aspect of this list. So the, I guess the uh, the controversy here, since we haven't gotten to uh, Deutschwechseln yet, um, we haven't read the, the gloss the actual plays that are given in the book for Deutschwechseln, which is changed through uh, Disengage, do not involve blade contact. They're all, you hew in, he tries to parry, and you duck, you go below his parry and stab him on, in on the other side. Apart from one in Danzig Lev, which says that you can also do this from blade contact. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, there's, there's like notes in there that say, like, you know, you can do this whenever. 
And then I there's mean, other reasons, but that's, I'm just trying to explain where like the controversy here arises. Like, why why is this a problem? Yeah. So the question is, go ahead, Jess. I was just going to say it's worth noting the only play in armored combat that references Indes that's an actual play is Der Spexel in armor. Huh. That's really cool. Do you I find it armor that. in the Dirk Fexel? Uh no. No. Right? Like I'm I'm thrusting with my spear high and you just dip your you dip your point as they try to parry. You don't let them touch it. Oh hmm. damn. That's really cool. Nice. No food in there. Listen how contradicts himself. More news at eleven. If, if I recall correctly, Indes is never used in the uh, mounted for Van Danzig, right? There's only one play um, in the mounted, and it is um, you're going up into like a high hanging parry, and you Indes thrust the face. So it's basically an upsets in, right? Indes upsets in thrust. Is this in Van Danzig or Lev? Or, uh, in Van Danzig, it's called the Taschenhau. Is the play of the Tashenhau? Right. Okay. And then if they parry that, you do you cut their uh, their Tashen. You cut their. You cut their, their rows. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> which um, which Lakushner applies on Messer on foot, so you right. can see him cutting a guy's purse. So but yeah, it's, it's a goofball play in, in Messer, isn't it? He he says it's a goofball play. Right. Yeah. It literally only makes sense on horse. Like I don't know what he's doing. <laughs> Well, it's a fencing action, so it's in Lekuchner. That's how it works. True. <laughs> he doesn't discriminate. Right. But I guess um, my, my... I mean, I didn't really have a point, but if I did, it would be that it's used a lot less often... It, it's used a lot more often in the Blosfechten than it is in the Mounted or the Armored. It's... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. One and I I mean, if you were to ask me why, I think it's because Blosfecten has no rules. You can do whatever you want, you're gonna hit somebody and it's gonna work. Right? Whereas mounted combat is very constrained by the way the horses have to move. Um and armored combat is constrained by the openings are so limited. It's all about hardware exploits. Yeah. In uh in horseback, I mean i obviously I don't do it, but you have less, I mean, from from what I imagine, you have less of a choice of when to engage the other person. Like the horses are coming at each other and they'll meet each other when they meet. And that's your time of engagement. Is that yeah. correct? Or? Well, that I, seems to be what Jack Gassman was saying in his, his little talk the other day about mounted combat, which I'll put up. Go ahead, Jess, you've actually done this. <laughs> I mean, yeah. There is, there's Vexel with the lance. It's the very first play that's taught in mounted combat. Like that's like the first play. And there is no lance contact for that Dersvexel. And it isn't called a Dersvexel and it isn't called Indes. So that's interesting. Um, yeah. I, I think one of the really interesting things about Indes is the places it isn't used in the glosses, whether armored or whether bloss or armored or horse where you might assume it would apply. And in general, there's just not that much reuse of language in a lot of this stuff, which is uh, interesting by itself. Things will get mentioned and then just get left and not mentioned the next time, despite the fact they seem to be the same thing. 
what's an example where it should be where you think it would be and doesn't it's not? Um Justice Dershwexholm with the Lance, where it's not called Dershwexholm, would be one possible one. Um, right. Uh, well, and there's there's also a mounted play I'm thinking of where you where you make a parry against their um, sphere and do what we would call a mutieran over their sphere to hit them on the other side, right? And it isn't called Indes or mutier, right? You're just falling over their sphere. Um, another example. In Bloss would be that none of the continuations from the Twerhau reference Indes, despite the fact they uh, specifically reference the opponent's pressure. They don't actually use the word Indes at any point. So the counters do, but the continuations don't. Should we go through and real quick mention all the places where it is used? Real quick, you say? Sure, <laughs> there's not that many. <laughs> well, there's. I don't, I don't have to read all of them out. I'll just... Uh, so before we move on too far, I wanted to come back to the idea about the rhyming um, and cast some doubt on the idea that these techniques were chosen just because they rhyme. Because I think if that's the case, then you have to explain why there are this number of them. But also looking at the German, they don't appear in their usual form. They've been mushed around in order to make them rhyme better, which suggests to me that it really had to be these and someone had to make them rhyme by like splitting up Dirk and Vexel so that they could be in the opposite order and rhyme with Dirk and Laufen. I possibly, my, my actual tentative hypothesis about why this rhyme came together is that this is a, like, a thing that somebody learned and in, interpolated into it. Like you have this idea, you, or you have this potential idea of assembling a thing out of bits and pieces, right? And this little, this fragment of poem floated around as a thing. Um, and somebody, maybe Sigmund the Lion, who wrote the first gloss, brought the, like, put this in here. It's like, yeah, I, like, I also learned this thing from some other guy, and it fits, so it's going in here. Because that also explains why it has, like, five Hauptstück, and then Durchwechsel, Duplier, and Mutier, and neither of which are actually Hauptstück. They're just things in the Lichtenauer setup. But if this was a... Also, also three different references to wrestling. Yeah, one of which is not even an upstuck Ringen. So yeah, I have you get, a lot about that, but we're not there yet. <laughs> but yeah, my point is, you get this like from a Lichtenauer perspective, it's a kind of weird mix of things. But if it's a a different little bit of a poem from something else, maybe that might be why it's like this precise list. So about uh, the words being changed around from their original form, the words are all in what is it? Uh, sec. No, they're in like I guess it would be third person singular, uh, with indest as the subject. So if you, you know, if if you say like you know I change I'm changing through, you wouldn't say ich durch wechsels or ich durch wechsle. You say ich ich wechsle durch. You have the word and then you have the because they're um, prepositional. Words, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Elsewhere in this text. Sorry. Is that the case elsewhere in this text? I don't know. I haven't. I haven't looked that closely, but uh, I, I'm, I think some places for sure. Like if he changes through, would be if he vexel. Vexel appears as Dirk Vexel a lot. Sure, but. 
either way. I mean, you can say it, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't think that there's anything like uh, really telling what I'm trying to say is I don't think there's anything really telling about the, uh, the word order there. I mean, to me, it, it looks normal. It looks like it matches what you would expect. I don't know if, if uh, Jess or Joey would feel the same way about that, but in Schilhau, it says uh, "vexelt unden dersh," for example. Right. So if he changes through, changes, changes under through. Yeah. Uh, it looks like it's often Dirk Vexel in the Hauptstück, but not a hundred percent of the time. Um, it is separated in a few places. The the word order is not really the important thing here. What I mean to point out is I don't think we should discard this particular set of techniques as being meaningless just because they rhyme. Sure. Yeah. So go ahead, Joey. Um, oh, thanks. So there's uh, Johannes Leckwichner, the the long knife guy, and <laughs> he uses this mm, the same format. <laughs> Um, of the rhyme, but he uses different techniques. So he said he also starts with indestupliert and indesmutiert, uh, indesturchlauft, but then he he uses some other techniques in there and uh, discards some of the longsword ones. I'm not sure what that means, <laughs> uh, but the longsword and the long messer uh, rhymes. Are both rhymy, but they use some different. Uh, they use different techniques, so maybe the techniques do mean something. Cool. I'm gonna show you. I'm gonna. Show yeah, I'm just looking this up right so, now. So I'll, I just want to say real quick why I don't think the techniques matter. So the way that that I read this section, you know, indus duplicates, indus transmutes, etc., is that. These are all things that you can do if you know how to use the word indus. If, you, if you're a master who hears the word indus, then you can do a duplarian, you can do a mutarian, you can do a change through, because you can figure all that stuff out while the bind is happening, and you'll make it happen because you know this word. So that's, that's kind of the way I look at it. Rather than indus is like an aspect of this technique of this particular technique if that makes sense any objection yeah. or criticism please <laughs> um I'll buy I, it. I don't know i i just don't think that's a thing that should be discarded but i haven't heard anyone do a real analysis of like which techniques aren't here what do they have in common is there anything that we would expect Indes for that isn't in this list. So one but obvious that might one. Be a study for another day. One obvious one which springs to mind, although I think it would be an interesting longer-term study, is absets uh, or abscessin, where the glosses, at least DL, uh, both use Indes. It's a very kind of tight, small action, so you'd kind of expect it to be listed if it's a list of things that are pretty core to Indes, but it definitely doesn't show up. Maybe we should get that full list from Steve now. Okay. Um, I have it pulled up now, so I can just go through it real quick. So we have uh, the the common lessons when they talk about the five words. They use Indus a few times. 
for uh, the Zornhal when in one of the like special paragraphs before they talk about the war. You know, if you soft to heart of the bind, uh, as soon as you sense it, wind indus and work with the war, etc. Uh, do player in it's used. Uh, crump to the flats, it's used. So you crump it. And, and not in Mutarin, huh? Right, not in Mutarin. So you crump, and then as soon as the swords clash together, you wind indus or you cut indus. Interesting cases there. Um, in Lev, it's used in the Noble War from the Crump. So you're winding the point Indus. But not any of the other glosses, just Lev. Uh, in the counter to the Tsfer in Danzig, and later in the Nakreisen counters to the Tsfer in Lev, if he strikes around to the other side with the Tsfer, then you come Indus before also with the Tsfer. So this is the under, Tsfering under their Tsfer. Um, in Danzig, the counter to the lower Tsfer. So he's doing it's fair, and you bind it, you're doing that indus. Or, no, you remain in the bind and stab indus to the lower opening. In the inverter for Danzig, Danzig Love and Nikolaus, not Ringek, as soon as you bind to the sword, hang in with the point above indus and stab to the face. In the beware of parrying in Danzig, uh, when you want to parry, parry with your hue or your stab and search indus with the point to the nearest opening. In the, oh, I already said this one. Okay, the old slice. Uh, as soon as the swords clash to the uh, onto each other, fall indes with the long edge onto his arm. Uh, Uberlaufen only in Danzig. It says, uh, work nimbly to the sword with the nearest opening, or let him work and you come indes so you land a hit on him. Uh, Absetzen versus a thrust. In all except for Ringek, you set aside with it so your point remains standing against him and step forth with the right foot and stab him indus to the face of the chest. And then there's no more uses of indus until the conclusion of the title, and only in Danzig it says, also know that all fencers who wind at the sword and cannot feel it at the sword, they will be struck by the windings, therefore be diligent. So that you well note the feeling in the word indus, because out of the out of those two things go all art of hunting. The end. <laughs> so the vast the vast majority of those things with the that they have in common is that what is being described as indes is your thrust from your parry. Yeah, your I think the the Uberlaufen one is probably the most interesting example for that because it doesn't use indes to describe your immediate action off the bind. It uses indes to describe a like if you wait in the bind, let them do a thing and then break it. That's the bit where it uses indes to describe it, um, which is probably like a is a, a really interesting little little piece of variation. Right, and that one's much more like uh, the counter to the sphere, right, where yeah. you. Stop their sphere, wait for them to pull, and then gack them. Yep. To me, the most interesting of those cases is the crump, which I think I mentioned when we talked about the crump, but I'll bring it up again. Because, you know, in this section on indus, we just heard about how you're supposed to bind to the sword, feel soft or hard, and then act indus according to the soft or hard. But in the crump, 
you're not feeling any soft or hard. You're just binding onto a sword and then winding or cutting. No matter as what soon as the swords clash together. Exactly. As soon as the swords clash together. So where's the unless, feeling? Unless Indes implies winding. So this in this case, they skipped that part. Well, it says that you wind I mean, after you do the Indes, right? Implies feeling, rather. What? Sorry, yeah. No point then. If you you, you so change from wind to feel. Clash together. Yeah, if you're going to use Indes, then then you must be feeling. Although it, it would be odd then if they didn't mention it like they usually do. Um, but I mean, the swords clashing together is also the language used in the feeling section. Yeah, there's actually very few of these plays which explicitly say that you feel. Some of them do, but a lot of them don't. Duplerin kind of does, um, but Crump doesn't. Uh, the Treyhau counters don't. Inverter doesn't really. There's a instructions to feel are actually really rare in the gloss, um, which is an interesting uh, little point by itself. For how important it apparently is. One of the only ones that gets repeated twice. Or in the verse about hard and soft. Uh, Jess, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, with regards to Krumpau, um, since Ringek makes an association between Krumpau and Upsetsin, and Upsetsin is another place where you bind and Indes do your thing, um, to me, this is the same. This is the same. You're doing a Krumpau parry instead of a Flug parry or an Ox parry. But Indes, you follow on with your winding, which is your thing. Yeah. That's how I see it, yeah. And I've been trying to find ways to connect Krumpau with Absetzen because of my preconceived idea of what I think Absetzen should be now. <laughs> so, thank you. Um, so, if we're, if we're all going around saying the interesting play, we, we notice, I would say counter to the Tver, which might be the only one where there's not an explicit bind. I mean, you start in a bind and you end in a bind, but the indes word itself seems to appear between the two binds instead of in the middle of one. I don't know why that is, and it's Donzig, so I don't have to care about it, but it's interesting. Now it's in Lev also. You, you, uh, you, you said it's only in Danzig here. It's in Danzig. Your list is wrong, Steve. But then the second, Alsagamim, uh, which we talked about last week, it has the same counter to the Tsver, just from a different setup, and it says in Dus. Does, oh, does it also say that you're... Yeah, we're not off the hook, unfortunately, for this one. Uh, so my, my off-the-cuff interpretation of that would be that because you're beginning in a bind and you're feeling his intention to Tsver around, that could qualify as enough to be Indes, but it is plain that the action you're doing is outside of the bind. And you're trying to hit his neck before his cut comes around. Well, what you're doing is you're going directly to the opening that he's made available by his movement, which you feel because you feel him moving away from your sword, right? So it works fine for my version. Yeah. It's not as, as clear-cut a case as when they tell you that the swords are clashing together, so be Indes. So it is squishy. It's the squishiest one on this list, in my opinion. All right, fencing by the book listeners. We had so much fun talking about Indus that we ended up going for almost two hours. So we've decided to separate the recording into two episodes. So we're cutting it off here and we'll pick up where we left off in the next episode. Thank you for listening to Fencing by the Book, the podcast where we take an in-depth look at the early Lichtenauer longsword glosses 
This has been Michael Smallridge, Michael Chittister, Kendra Brown, Jess Finley, Stephen Cheney, Johanna Hofgardner, and TQ. See you next time.